Our show here is built around the idea that in a simple conversation, great things, near magical things can happen. Well, this week, a simple conversation with your family or partner about what you'd like to do with the wealth that surrounds your bones could magically change the lives of multiple people forever. So it seems fitting that on this organ donation week, we would devote our entire episode to the subject of organ donation, its power, its necessity and the difficulties it faces in these strange times. And we will hear here for the very first time three very different stories. Firstly, starting with RTE Courts reporter, ambassador for the Irish Kidney Association and live kidney donor Vivian Trainer. Then we will hear from actress and star of such things as Wonder Woman, The Office, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and live kidney donation recipient Lucy Davis. And finally, we will hear from a man who has raised almost two million euro for kidney donation projects through his Punchestown Kidney Research Fund, competed at multiple transplant games for Ireland, the award-winning Kilcullen Butchery Supremo and one of the first ever Irish recipients of a kidney from a living donor, James Nolan. We've made the decision this week to release this episode in full on all of our platforms. But if you'd like to go back and hear the two previous kidney donation episodes I've created, including the documentary of my own donation in 2017 and my conversations with Dr. Joshua Meserich and Donald McRae, the author of Every Second Counts, the dramatic story of the race, to be the first to transplant a human heart, you can delve into our archives over on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. For the price of a cup of coffee each month, you'll be supporting the show and allowing us to continue making this podcast through these difficult times. Today's show isn't about my story, though. But it is important to point out that I donated a kidney four years ago and both I and my brother are in the shape of our lives. So much so that I have taken on the challenge set for me by Irish athletics legend Sonia O'Sullivan to run 2000 kilometres in one year. So far, I've raised almost 5000 euro. My chosen charity partner, Jigsaw.ie, is an extraordinary Irish charity that tries to equip young people with the mental health skills that they'll need to survive in life. Just visit idonate.ie and search my name to support me on my run to 2000k or tune in every Tuesday as Sonia coaches me and you to running better and feeling better through this pandemic. Now, on with the show, beginning with the story of Irish Kidney Association ambassador and live kidney donor Vivian Trainer. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little 
green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Vivian Trainer, thank you so much for joining me on this very special episode of An Irish Man Abroad. I mean, I always find it strange to meet people who've gone through the same thing I went through because everyone's experience is so different. And I'm sure you've encountered other living donors. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, it's you do have a special connection with people, I think, who've done it. I love to meet people who've either who are living donors or who are interested in becoming a living donor. You know, you, you do have a special kind of bond with them or something in common. But like you say, yeah, everybody's different. Everybody's story is different. Everybody's circumstances are different. I mean, I know some people I've made some friends through, you know, my work in this area for the Kidney Association. I've met a lot of donors. I've become very good friends with some people. But I've, I've met mothers who've donated to their children and people like that. And that's a very different set of circumstances, I suppose. Mm. Um, a lot more challenging, I'd imagine, because not only are you undergoing surgery yourself, but then your child is. Um, and you can't play that role of carer in the first 24, 48 hours as you'd like to after surgery. So, you know, in a way, it kind of makes you think how easy I had it. And I don't know if you were in the same boat donating to your brother, but you only have to look after yourself. Yeah. after the surgery and and you have your own people in your own family to look after you. But yeah, everybody's circumstances are different. But at the same time, you do have that special kind of bond with people, with other living donors, I think. Yeah, and I leapt at it. Like I was really excited to do it. And I felt like that's something we had in common in that you were quite, by the sounds of everything I read and saw you do, you were very practical about it, that it just seems like the right thing to do. And I was kind of the same way. I was like, well, of course I'll do this. And yeah, yeah, I found it a very easy decision to make. But then I didn't want to really say that too much about it afterwards when people were saying, you know, was it a very difficult decision? I didn't want to minimize it in case other people were considering the same decision and were finding it difficult because it is I had to accept that it is a huge decision for somebody to make but it just didn't feel like that to me it just seemed really Mm. practical I also had the opinion that if doctors were willing to do it that you know they would never do anything that they didn't have faith in themselves that that, you know was going to work they would never do any harm to an otherwise healthy person so to me it just felt like the natural thing to do when I knew that my nephew needed a kidney and I began to kind of research it a bit more first just as a kind of a patient advocate for him and it was a very natural thing. So I, I tried not to, afterwards when people would ask me about it, I, I would try to, you know, to say it is an important decision, but it just didn't feel like a huge deal to me. And people saying things like, you were very brave and you were, um, you know, you saved his life. And I was saying, well, no, I didn't save his life because dialysis would have kept him alive. So it wasn't a life-saving thing. And I didn't feel very brave at the time because it just didn't feel like a very big deal to me. Well, there's a couple of things there, right? There's a couple of things that we could get into. And, you know, one of them is the the positivity of that thought, right? That 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 attitude and manner and mentality or headspace that you brought to it, the certainty obviously helped uh, certainly in the research I did before mine, I realized that actually my headspace of, oh, this is going to work, 
helps the whole thing along. And I'm not a believer yeah. in the secret or the law of attraction or positive no, mental no, attitudes. No, nor I, but yet I adopted it for this and only for this. And I wish I could adopt it in every area of my life, but I would be very practical, very down to earth. And I, you know, would never have really gone for, you know, throw something out to the universe kind of thing and it'll come back to you. I don't really believe in all of that. I just get on with things. But for this, um, I suppose because it was unknown territory, I, I did decide this is going to work and I'm only going to hear and listen to positive thoughts about it. I'm going to I'm going to visualize it happening. I'm going to visualize it being a success. And it was. So I don't know. I don't know whether that worked or not, but it certainly helped me through it. Mm, yeah, no, I, I really did feel that it uh, that it helped me through it, that I would visualize. I picture myself afterwards. I pictured myself delivering the high fives. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, the you know, the joyous uh, like the like I walked on air afterwards, like I definitely yeah. was high as a kite <laughs> for many reasons. Yeah. Obviously, the yeah, I can well understand that. Yeah. But, but you're, yeah. you're floating afterwards. Uh, so and the first thing I said, and if people want to go back and listen to that episode, because I documented my experience on Irishman Abroad and even like in the hour after I came to that, I just wish other people knew that mm. this feeling that like people are going around climbing Kilimanjaro, uh, running ultra marathons. And you're like, this, uh, this is this feeling is available to you should the situation arise uh, that like there's all this legacy chasing going on that I talked about in the Oregon Freeman show, which is that all Irish lads want to be considered ultrasound. <laughs> And that this method is one way of guaranteeing that legacy for yourself. <laughs> if a little bit extreme, but yeah, it is. <laughs> but, uh, you know, no, I you can understand that because you do have a sense. And, and again, I could see people kind of looking at me funny when I said this, but you I felt as, as much a beneficiary of the process. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, as as my nephew That's Martin exactly did, because, OK, at. I was donating a kidney, but I got a huge sense of achievement out of that. And I also and not in a sense that, you know, oh, aren't I great? I did this. It was I felt it was a real privilege to take part mm -hmm. in that process. I was fascinated by the fact that the doctors could come to me afterwards and say, we, you know, we've transplanted the kidney and it's already working. It began to work while your nephew was still in surgery and just the scientific element of it and what they were able to do. I was completely blown away by the, the medical professionals and what they were able to do with this and how they were able to to do all of this within the one day and that the kidney was working and just to be allowed to be a part of that, I felt was was a few, you know, it was a huge privilege without sounded too high and mighty about it. That's just the way I felt about it at the time. Um, and I was, like you say, I'm glad to hear you say you were really excited about doing it because I was too. When we got the call to say there had been a cancellation in the hospital in Coventry because we went to the UK to have it done, once I decided that, yeah, we were going to take that slot, I got really excited about it and I couldn't wait to get there to get it done, you know. And again, I was saying to people, you know, I was getting text messages from some people who knew and I was saying, thanks a million, I'm, I'm really excited about it. And they were going, right, yeah, excited. That's a word, okay. <laughs> you know, they couldn't understand why I wasn't, you know, terrified or frightened. I was delighted. We were going to get it done. It had been a long slog and it was just, 
you know, it was really exciting. I'm glad, really interested mm. to hear you felt the same emotion. That's gas. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, there's obviously a come down, right? There's uh, and I yeah. sometimes whenever people come to me and go, uh, you know, what can I expect? There is a, there is a deflation then in the same way as if you did climb Kilimanjaro that like you'll be like, super excited and then there's a there's a trough after that and then you level out and people need to know about that. I just think that there's a few things that I love telling people about this process. I'm interested to hear uh, if you had the same experience. So when I rocked up to the uh, Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, where we did our thing, I went out there in June-ish to be assessed and go through the uh, the rigmarole of all the tests that were involved and very, very careful process. I'm sure that was the same for you. The psychological element of it was was massive about asking your intentions and your frame of mind for doing this. But I was a little overweight at the time and not much, but they definitely said to me, give it a go, try and get in shape for this because that'll help your recovery. Did they say that to you? Hey, I'm not sure that I was told to be as fit and as healthy as possible, but I do remember that I had passed all of the medical tests, like all of the renal tests, all of the heart tests, everything like that. And the one thing that terrified me most that I, I knew they were going to put me on a treadmill to do the stress test. <laughs> and I was saying, imagine if you passed every other medical test <laughs> and you failed the treadmill <laughs> test because you're such a lard ass and you walk and run or walk. So I remember walking furiously. Um, in the run up to it and running, start trying to run a little bit. I wasn't a runner at the time, but I was trying to, to I think it was probably the first time I'd ever run in my life. And uh, yeah, and that was out of sheer embarrassment because if I didn't want to fail the stress test. Well, this is one of the uh, little known facts that I uncovered over the course of it was that remarkably, on average, live donors tend to live longer than none donors. Yeah, because they have annual checkups. They have annual checkups. But yeah. also, I don't know if you feel this, I have much greater appreciation for this gift that I have, which is the body I'm in. Uh, like I'm in the shape of my life. That's par- that's partially down to Sonia O'Sullivan and the Irishman running abroad. <laughs> I was the same <laughs> as you. I had never run anywhere until Sonia arrives on the scene. But equally, I, I was never fit until they put me to the pin of my collar and we're like, you know, being a bit fitter than you are right now would help. Did you feel that sense of just feeling like blessed to be able to fly along here with one kidney in the back pocket and that kind of greater appreciation for what you have? Yeah, definitely makes you appreciate what you have and also makes you a little bit more careful about your health, I think, and your fitness and your, you know, you always have in the back of your mind, I suppose, that you need to take care of of all of your organs, not just your one kidney. But in particular, I suppose your kidney is the thing you have to tell mm. every doctor that you see after that for anything. Even a dentist, you always have to say, you know, I only have one kidney or whatever. But it does, yeah, it makes you a little bit more um, health conscious, I suppose. Well, let me ask you this, say. because you say that you've you've met an awful lot of donors and... 
I think over the course of, I think this is our third kidney donation episode or organ donation episode that we've done of Irishman Abroad. I've met various different people from various different walks of life and different experiences, including surgeons themselves, like Dr. Joshua Meserick, who wrote an incredible book on organ donation that people should really try and get their hands on. You've met different donors and different people through your work with the foundation or association. What can you tell us about those experiences and what ones really stand out? Well, I suppose one that would stand out to me is I was in work one day and got an email from a woman who said, I, yeah, I hope you don't mind me contacting you, but I'm hoping to donate a kidney to my daughter. She had a very young daughter at the time. I think she was only two. And she just decided to get in touch because she had heard about my experience of donation and knew, you know, knew who I was and how to get in touch with me, I suppose, and asked would I mind, you know, having a chat with her or emailing her about that. And and that was, you know, many years ago. And I suppose I got in touch with that woman. I was perfectly happy to to talk to her, but we remained friends and got to know each other just through that. And turns out we've been awful lot in common and get on so well. We live on different sides of the country, but just to kind of follow their experience all the way along and to hear bit by bit how they got on and got through the operation and all of that. And we're still in touch to this day and her daughter is doing really well and all of that. And, you know, I was contacted by other people who were going through similar things and I would always be very open to chatting to people and just telling them how I got on. But, you know, realising everybody's different and everybody's circumstances are different. But I suppose that was, it's a nice thing to be able to do that because I think when I was donating, like it was back in 2009 and there was there was very little information available. I mean, you, you to go online and most of the, or any of the support groups or any of the information that was all in the States. It was all US based. And that was my only source of information uh, for living donation. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was really tough. It was hard to find out information. It was hard to get information. And there was no kind of support group here, very little information here even. Although I did, you know, I, I did my best to find out as much as I could here, but 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 just wasn't available to the same degree that it's available now. So I think even being able to do that and to meet people and talk to them by email or by phone was great to be able to do that. Now, of course, there's so much more information available to people online and there are support groups and chat groups and Facebook pages and everything. So it's completely different. And yet. But back then it wasn't. And yet, remarkably. And maybe not so remarkably in the age of misinformation that we live in now, there's still certain fears that people have around this. What's the one that you encounter most often? And what do you what's the sense you get from people around making organ donation opt out rather than opt in? I think I don't know if you came across this, but I definitely felt that people were divided into two categories when I first started to tell people that I was preparing to donate an organ. And I hope it's not too much of a generalisation, but there were definitely two types of reactions I got. There were certain people who the minute they heard it said, you're doing what? Oh, oh my God, that's amazing. Brilliant. Good luck. Go for it. What a great thing to do. Hope it all goes well. 
And then there were people who would say, you're doing what? Oh, are you mad? That's, you know, that must be really scary. Is it really dangerous? You know, and they really were divided into those two types, you know. Was it 50-50 um, or what was the proportion? No, I think it was more... Um, Definitely more of the former, more of the enthusiastic type. Yeah. But there were a few people who sort of, you could see their reaction, you know. And it could have been like it was genuinely felt concern for me or I suppose. But I did find that there were those two distinct reactions. People going, oh, I don't know if I'd do that now. Oh, I don't. And did I, you ever I would push them, say to them you would. Well, I, I said they would more kind of question my decision and say, oh, are you sure about that? I'm not sure I'd do that. And I'd say, well, I think you would if you were faced with the opportunity or the need for it. I think it's a bit of a, you know, it's not such a difficult decision when, you know, it's someone you know and someone in your family and someone you care about and they need a kidney. It isn't actually that difficult a decision. And they're kind of saying, oh, I don't know about that. Now. I don't know if I'd do that. And I'd only ever come across one person before in my life, a friend who had some issue years previous to this, so it wasn't really relevant at the time, who had some kind of an issue with organ donation in general, but didn't really, we never really got into it. And I know that there are differing opinions on the opt-out system, because I did hear, you know, a lot of differing opinions about that before it, you know, became a possibility or a reality in the, in this country. Um, and people saying about whether or not it would work, but it seems to be you know, it seems to be the way to go. Mm. I don't come across much opposition to it, I have to say, um, in my daily life. But then again, you know, and I don't know if you feel that but you're probably, uh, your donation is probably not as in the past as mine is. Or well, I've very much kind of moved on from the donation and, and forget about it a lot. And I know that sounds hilarious because people do still ask me about it. But after the first sort of year or two, I don't think about it an awful lot anymore, you know. I kind of just forget about it. If, if that, that, that might sound really strange, but I actually do. Mm -hmm. um, and I constantly have to remind myself when it was and how many years ago it is and stuff like that. I had to ask my husband before I, we made this call today, what year was the donation? Because I know he'd probably ask me that. And, you know, and, and several dates. But I do, I, I actually forget about it. It's not something that exists all the time between myself and my nephew either, you know. See, that'll that'll blow people's minds, I think. When they when they listen to this, because, you know, you you get the sense that this is a, a defining moment in a person's life. But 100 percent, it's obviously a, a key moment, but you don't walk around feeling like I'm missing that organ in my back. No, not at all. At all. You know, and you genuinely do forget about it after the first. I mean, we, we celebrated you know, a year after the transplant just to mark the first anniversary of it. And after that, we just, you know, got on with it. And you do forget. And every year, you know, it's a joke between myself and Martin because he will send me a text, you know, to say happy kidney anniversary. And every year I forget. He catches me out nearly every single year. And every year I forget because it's just, you know, you move on, different things happen. And you have more children or whatever. And there are more pressing things more in pressing life, things. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I know my own brother felt a, a tremendous responsibility to take care of it and to look after Declan, my kidney, as yeah. I call him. Uh, <laughs> he uh, was always saying to me that like, oh, no, don't worry, I won't be abusing this yolk with pints. And, that. and I, I, was, I was like, on yeah. the contrary, you should be drinking pints. That's why I gave it to you. Yeah. And, and if I'm able it's to drink pints, area. you should yeah, too. Yeah, it is tricky. Yeah. You, yours is very, yeah. very tricky as well from the sense that, you know, in my brother's case, his kidney, because of his specific 
medical situation, his won't more than likely run out or get used up in the manner in which other people's might. He's very much rock, rock steady now. In your nephew's case, this is different. And the kidney that you donated eventually gets attacked four years later. When did you first hear that that was taking place? And was Martin incredibly sad and in some ways guilty about that? Yeah, and that was one of the most difficult things we've ever had to deal with, I think, from his point of view, um, because it did become apparent, you know, after the first, I suppose, three years maybe, that something was wrong and that they were starting to, you know, to try to treat it and to try to save the kidney. But I, th- I think the writing was on the wall for a very long time. But the most difficult thing for him was having to tell tell us that and to tell tell me that. And, you know, that was very difficult for him, but not for me. It was never... And I thought about this a lot and it's really difficult to kind of explain to people. But for me, when I decided to donate the kidney... The minute the decision was made to donate it, it was no longer my kidney. I never even referred to it as that after that, because I had to decide in my mind. I felt it was very important for me to decide that whether or not this was a success, whether or not the kidney lasted, if it lasted him 10 months, 10 years, 10 minutes, I could not attach any emotion to that or significance. For me... When I decided to donate the kidney, it then became his and it was no longer mine. So I didn't have any expectations, shall we say. I wasn't going, I heard people describing that when, you know, if the transplant failed or if it failed a year later, that they went through a kind of a grief process and all of that. I never experienced anything like that because I didn't have any attachment to that. Um, So for me, it was worthwhile doing, even if it kept him off dialysis for for a year, for even for one year. And I did speak to his consultant about it afterwards because he's also my consultant. And he said, I'm glad you feel that way because the main thing about organ transplantation is to keep people off dialysis for as long as possible. And he did get a good, you know, four to five years from that organ and that will stand to him in the future. And indeed it did stand to him in the future because he was able to get another transplant a very successful one from a deceased donor only six months after that. So he was only back on dialysis for six months. But it it broke my heart to know that he was finding it uh, difficult to to Mm. tell us that, that that Mm. was the hard part for him, not that he'd be back on dialysis and all the tough stuff, but that he had to tell us. And that was, he was finding that hard. Yeah. That's really difficult. I know, I know. Um, And it's emotional. I mean, there is, I can hear the emotion in your voice because, look, this is, it is an, a massively emotional experience, even when mm-hmm. you do think this is the right thing to do. I'm at home with all of the facts connected to it. This is still two lives and this is yeah. still someone that you love. Oh, uh, hugely emotional. Yeah. And that, that part of it really was and, and all around the time of the transplant as well. I mean, I might say that it's a, it was a practical decision to make and it was a, a no brainer and all of that. That doesn't take away from the emotion of it at the time. Mm. I mean, uh, Vivian, it's brilliant to talk to you about it. And I think the job you do as an ambassador is extraordinary. Uh, also, the the manner in which you speak about it and just the tone you strike all the time is really inspiring. I've absolutely no doubt that 
this conversation will produce more signups. And that's really what we want. But even without the signups, and let's be honest, some people can just put that on the long finger and just never get around to getting one sent to them in the post or text. It's so easy to just text and they'll ping one out to you. The conversation is key, is it not? Yeah, and that's the thing that a lot of people only hear for the first time around Organ Donation Awareness Week when you remind them that you can carry a card and it's great if you do or you can download the app on your phone. But if you haven't spoken to your family and your next of kin and you haven't told them what your wishes are, it may not happen because, you know, they are the ones who will make the decision in the event of your untimely death. They are the people who will be be faced with that decision. And it's always easier for them to make that decision. And I think we've heard this from families who've been in this situation, that it was an easy decision for them to make because they knew that that's what they, their loved one wanted. So, you know, it's a twofold process, really. By all means, carry the card, download the app on your phone. But always make sure that the person who will be, you know, who is your legal next of kin, the person who will be asked to make that decision knows that you want to donate your organs uh, yeah, and in what the event better, of your death. What better time to do? We're putting this episode out uh, at the start of Organ Donation Week, the lead up to Easter. So on the next Zoom call or Skype, as it's my preference, just bring it up. Just have the chat. Or if you're there with your partner now listening to this, just have the chat. What's the worst that can happen? Even if they go, I really wouldn't like you to do that and you win them over or play this episode for them. It's good to have it out in the open. I mean, we're not forcing people to do anything they don't want to do. This is all about exactly, finding yeah. people that do want to do it and that are are up for this idea. And if we'd more of them, we wouldn't have people waiting like Martin did to hear. Vivian Trainer, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. It was great. I really enjoyed it, Gerald. Thank you. IKA.ie is the website of the Irish Kidney Association. And I've just noticed they do a digital donor card there. I mean, you don't even need to get something posted out to you. You can do it digitally there through uh, for Apple and Android phones. So check that out. IKA.ie. Well, next, Lucy Davis is a ridiculously talented and funny actress who we will all definitely remember from her standout performance as Dawn Tinsley in the original office on the BBC or any of her roles in shows like Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, Californication and the smash hit Wonder Woman movies. I feel really honoured that after a long time of feeling uneasy, too uneasy to talk about her organ donation story, that Lucy felt comfortable enough to share it in great depth with me for the very first time. This is the story of Lucy Davis. Lucy Davis, it's fantastic to have you on this very special episode of An Irishman Abroad. And I vividly remember us making contact around the time of my donation to my brother. And I, I remember, you know, it being clear to me that this was such a special thing to you. And yet I, I don't think I fully all I knew was there was a murmur that this your involvement with this. When did you decide that you we're going to keep this more to yourself and that this was going to be your story. And what what motivated you to to speak now? 
So when I had my transplant, it was 1997. So roughly, I think that's just over 23 years. And the world was a little different then. Thankfully, things are changing and people are becoming more accepting of certain things. But back then, I found, uh, you know, I was on, I, I was an actor then, back then, and my dad in England is well known. And there was press waiting for us outside of the hospital that I was at. And then when we were at home, and my mom had used to be a journalist before she got married and before she had me. And suddenly a couple of journalist friends, shall we say, would call and drop by the house because it would be very difficult to turn somebody away. And I remember seeing um, a journalist coming in and when he thought he wasn't being seen, taking photos of our photos in the house, like family photos. No. And yeah, and my mom and I were still on couches and recovering and the operation back then was a lot bigger than than it is today thankfully and <clears throat> we were just not very well and this huge thing had, had happened to us and now we've got people knocking on a door and and certain publications continually years and years later writing about me as if I'm still unwell mm. and it was in days before social media where you can more easily maybe if you wish, you know, speak on your own behalf. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I just, I felt like I'm just not going to say anything. This is my business and I'm saying nothing. Mm. And, and in many ways, I did live like that. It was very, very private. And as the years have gone by, I've loosened up a little bit with that. And in terms of why I speak more now is because Actually, I saw an interview with Sarah Highland, you know, the actress yes. from Modern Family. Now, she's had two transplants, and I think she's amazing. And I was listening to a short interview, and I heard her say things that resonated with me without realizing that they resonated until she said them. Things that I can't really explain, but one of the things she said was, spending your whole life feeling a burden it has a huge effect on you and for some reason I was like yes yes my family never make me feel like a burden I know that I'm not in that were my family to have needed a kidney I'd have given one without hesitation and I know all of that I'm not stupid but the idea that because your family were close and they care so much, that ever since I've been diagnosed with kidney failure, I was like 20, it, I'm aware, I was aware at the time of like, I don't want to be the ill one. I don't want to be the one that people go, that's the kidney girl. And I'd have some people, as soon as I'd enter a room, go, like they'd change their demeanor and be like, oh, how are you? All right. I hate that. 100%. Like, yeah. Like, let the kidney be thing be the thing that I just do and deal with and then and then ignore it. And for many years, there were people that didn't even know I'd had a transplant or anything. But hearing Sarah talk, and I don't know her at all, I properly firsthand became aware of the benefit of hearing somebody else say things that resonate with you. And 
I've often spoken about other issues I've had. You know, I've spoken about being in recovery for an eating disorder. I've <clears throat> spoken about being diabetic. I'm, I'm diabetic because one of the drugs I was, uh, I am on for my transplant gave me diabetes. So, but those things I haven't, but I think the kidney stuff for me began at a time when there are certain newspapers that just wouldn't let it go. And everything I did was, was I was either too underweight, too overweight. Oh, the kid, she's ruining the kidney. This is happening with the kidney. Now she's been in hospital with kidney failure. And none of these things were real. And so I think I just kept my mouth shut more yeah. and more and more and retreated. Understandable. And yeah, yeah. I mean, so, it's, it, my, my wife has a, a long-term illness. And for the same oh. reasons, Lucy, even though she's not in the public eye, yeah. she can identify with a lot with what you're saying about not wanting it to define you and right. not wanting, you know, people to be unable to get past you know, to right. just every time they see you, they think that. And then it becomes the thing they don't say that, you know, yeah. they want to say. Uh, and I always respect Tina's decision to just be yeah. like, no, this is mine. And I will I will not yeah. allow that to become my thing. What you're doing yeah. right now yeah. and what you've said just there is 100 percent why I'm doing this episode is because right. I believe that the communication and the dialogue and the Irish Kidney Association and Organ Donor Week that's taking place right now is about informing people and getting that first hand experience yeah. of the power of mm. this mm. thing. When you yeah. when you're there in it, yeah. just as I've been, uh, but you're on the other side. Yeah. Is it hard to articulate exactly the power of this gesture, this this act that your mother did for you? Oh, you know, the only way I could articulate it is by knowing that I would be doing the same. That's the that's the thing that gave me the comfort because I'm not a good receiver of things and I need to be better at that because actually you know, when you say things like, oh, I'd rather give than receive, it, it makes it sound like, oh, isn't that lovely of you? But actually it isn't. You know, it, it's actually quite a gift to somebody when you can receive something graciously and, and, and be genuinely thankful for it. And obviously I was. I, I It was hard because I'm also seeing my mom go under huge surgery. And, and, you know, like we know it is, it is a little easier nowadays. So that's wonderful. Back then in 97, it was a huge thing. And in fact, not a very big thing to have uh, a kidney, not from a cavender, to have a live kidney mm. wasn't thing that was done as much. I went to end stage renal failure before the really? transplant happened. Yes, because then it was about look, you know, your kidney might last four, five, six years. We, your new kidney, rather, the, the, the transplant. Uh, we, we know someone who's had it 10 years. Um, so back then it was about trying to keep you going as long as possible without the transplant in order to add extra time the other end. And I remember at the time thinking, I, I refuse to take that on. I refuse to take it on that I might have to have another one. That's all I can remember thinking. Like, 
it was like I, I was going to sweep it under the carpet, which, P.S., I don't think is a terrible thing to do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, this isn't happening again. And, that, and who knows? I don't know, Jonathan, what will happen, but I'm 23 years in now. And I think our attitude to anything is the biggest part of why something might succeed. I don't want to say, obviously, that if it hasn't succeeded, it's because someone doesn't have a good attitude. I really don't. I'm not meaning that. But for me, it's what got me through, mm. through is to not focus on the being the ill person. I don't think that was the question you asked. Well, well no, it's, in, it's just interesting because it actually echoes some of what Vivian has said in the first half of this episode. Uh, about the attitude and, you know, about the positivity that you bring to it. And, right. you know, th that came up in my situation. And I think a lot of people are aware of this thing of I don't necessarily believe in the secret. I don't necessarily believe in the right. power of positive thinking. But yeah. you when it's your mom giving you this, right. it yeah. must be it, like it must be even more difficult in so many ways because she's already given you so much. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you remember the conversation or the moment when you both looked in each other's eyes and realised, yeah, it's sure. going to be my mom and this is going to happen? Um, not quite in that way. I mean, um, all my family went to get tested and my mom and my one of my sisters were a match. In fact, one of my sisters was a hundred percent match and it was it was so unusual that they asked her to do the tests again they thought they were actually looking at my blood oh my god yeah and but obviously i was then 20 some well 21 i think by then and so and she would only have been 18 and the last thing i would have wanted is first my sister at 18 to have given me a kidney this is just I'm not saying that's wrong I'm just saying what I went through at the time and yeah so although something else was going to say what was it blah, blah, blah. so you decided it would be your mother so they yeah it was more decided I think bless my mom I don't think she was letting anyone else get in there <laughs> Do you know what I, mean? I think my mom was being like nope no, 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 no. I've had all my children. <laughs> I don't need my other kid. I mean, that's my mom for you. My dad would have been the same. So I was very lucky. But I will say, obviously, you thank the person that's done that for you. But I would say it was about only two years ago, Jonathan, when I was coming back from a, a checkup at hospital here. And I've had a couple of issues around the kidney stuff in the last few years and I broke down on the phone to my mom and said what might be a proper thank you. And I don't want to say that therefore I haven't because we've said it a million times. You know, we have on anniversaries, which is 15th of December each year, on anniversaries we'll text each other, do you know what I mean? And like, oh, it's five years and, you know, thank you again, mom, love you, all of that. But, but about two years ago, I just broke down and I was like and what had happened was I'd had a blip in something and then but I suddenly realized how few people there were going on what was then 21 years with a kidney with a transplanted kidney and I had this whole kind of wave of like oh my god like I'm so lucky and and I just sobbed on the phone to my mom, who then, of course, sobbed back. And and I'm not a very, um, 
what's the word like fluffy person in that way do you know what i mean like, i do quite straightforward like i'll say thank you so much i really appreciate that I, I don't i don't break down and cry with that I'm, that's not really me and i just was like i can't believe what you did and i don't know what it was about that moment that that happened but yeah so so we had a really nice phone call then it's but, uh, uh, it, it, it's it's normal to be overwhelmed i mean, was, I mean yeah. if this doesn't overwhelm you what will mm-hmm. I, I mean the couple yeah. of the couple of things that i've been talking to people about specifically around the awareness of this again thank you for doing this because you know your voice here will draw ears to this episode that just wouldn't have listened Okay, that, that's the fact. And that's that's the power, as you say, Sarah Highland and yourself have oh, and the role that you're playing here. Uh, so if you're talking to those people that mightn't have listened to the episode, mm-hmm. were you not on it? Yeah. What is it you'd like people to know about organ donation and carrying an organ donor card? I know I know the stuff for me, but I'm interested from your side. What is it that you yeah. have come across and you thought, I wish people could know this? I think, you know, it, the idea of organ donation, first of all, if you're living is one thing. And if you're donating and you have a loved one who passes away, who wants their organs donated, some sometimes people, family members can find that very difficult. And, and I do understand that. I, I am quite practical in that kind of way. I, I think once our body is is no longer, you know, working, we've passed away, I wouldn't have any problem with someone taking everything that I've got to the idea that it might actually give another life, I think is really amazing. I'd be so, oh, so happy, whoever had it, do you know what I mean? Mm. I'd be so happy. So I do encourage people just to look into that. I, I do know that other people have their own beliefs around donation, especially when people have passed away. But, you know, it, the, what you give in return, that life that you've given someone that I wouldn't have had, had this not been the case. I think it's such a huge thing. And um, anyone who could consider it, you know, it would be so amazing. Um, Obviously, I haven't been the person, I've been the person that's received it and not um, given it. But I think my mom would say exactly the same, you know, that to to have given it has been um, a joy for her. If I say that on her behalf, she might listen to it and go, well, (laughs) let me tell you this. (laughs) yeah yeah so it's it's i i know with some people it can be it's a very strange subject in many ways to me it isn't to me the idea of of letting somebody else live is a no-brainer for me Mm, yeah Uh, yeah. well the way the way i've said it in the past is that um there's an old irish saying that yeah however wealthy you are (laughs) whenever a a wealthy guy rolls into town or somebody yeah. is flashing their cash. Yeah. Irish people will say, you know, you can't take it with you. Mm-hmm. And it's such a it's such a powerful thing and, a, you know, a real uh, Irish dig as well. But at the right. same at the same time, it's really true of this wealth yes. that surrounds your bones. What yeah. is the point in taking it with you and right. burying it? 
you know that that's how I, like to me this organ donation week takes place in Ireland at this festival of Easter which traditionally is this kind of spring break that we get two weeks holidays over there for it it's truly yeah it's truly fantastic time of year for a break but it's always been a time when I've got to sit down with my family and got to talk in in a way that you don't find a Christmas because it's so bananas. It's just chaos from one end of the two weeks to the other. But the Easter break is the chance to sit down and kind of actually go, well, what do you think about this? Were I to carry the card? I kind of think it's the perfect window for that. I'd love to know that, like, what you would say to somebody who is going home or obviously or is going to see their family on Zoom this uh, this Easter and their concern is about well what quality of life would a live donor have afterwards your mom sounds like she's just moved on the same way as I have as if it never really happened nearly a hundred percent a hundred percent we have two kidneys we don't need two kidneys Obviously, I had kidney failure, but that wasn't one kidney failing and the other staying. That was just both of them. I now don't have that. They're physically not there. Okay. Uh, so uh, in terms of anyone maybe going for that conversation, if someone said to me, you know, I don't want to donate my organs because of my religion, for example, obviously I'm going to respect somebody's religion. Of course. I think, I think that I... I'm not religious, and I think for me, anything come, any good can come from any proper adult conversation. And it, so it depends on the other person. And if you think that you're, you want that conversation, because sometimes it's like, well, I mean, I heard recently uh, someone saying they didn't want their uh, the body of their loved one to, to the organs to be removed because this person wouldn't go to heaven now i don't understand that concept i don't believe that concept but i will say just because that's not my belief doesn't mean it isn't real hmm. so i i do understand that i do understand that when we we, we can often fear things. I don't understand why removing your organ to give someone else life means you don't go to heaven. I don't understand that. I uh, The concept seems bizarre to me, but that doesn't mean that it's bizarre to someone else. And it so, also doesn't mean that you can't then talk about that. I mean, I know that uh, British yeah. and Irish homes can be a bit like, now that's the end of that. Don't bring it up again. I've made my position clear. <laughs> but I do think that there is room to go, well, well, what part of you is it that you think goes to heaven? Like I was raised Catholic and, you know, right. I would have a certain residual beliefs and hopes more than anything spiritually. And I think that there is a kind of a balance that can be struck without disrespecting someone's beliefs and 100%. talking to them about well, yeah. is that is is that the the rock on which this pe- this discussion perishes, or mm-hmm. do we do we talk about the spirit and and yeah. things like this? I guess what I'm trying to say, Lucy, is that if if we're going to take people off waiting lists, like at the moment there's 600 people currently waiting on transplants in Ireland, mm-hmm. the the only way that's going to happen 
is yeah. through talking. Because as Vivian yeah. has already said, you can carry yeah. the card, yeah. but your family have to sign off at the at, at the we'll moment and the decision oh, is made. Yeah, oh. so you, your, your next of kin has to go, yeah, we discussed that and that is his wish. Yeah, here I believe, well, I'm in America at the moment, I could be wrong, but I believe that if you have signed, like I've signed it wherever you, wherever mm. you, you're asked to sign it, like if you're getting your driving license, I think, mm. you, you, you know, so I've signed it there. To my knowledge, that's all that's needed mm. is that I've signed it, to my knowledge. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, because obviously, as we said, you've you've played your cards close to your chest on this and uh, you've obviously had people like me reach out to you in the past some of the stories and the situations that you've heard must have been must be crazy like a, I don't want you to reveal names but can you tell us about anybody in particular that you've come into contact who've been through the process who've been through the transplant process you mean yeah or or any stories from anyone you've been in contact with in relation to this yeah actually bizarrely very few um i remember um and i think i told you this before Charlotte, so you can hear it again yeah. <laughs> I, when i was in vancouver i spent a couple of years there doing a tv show and the building i lived in the fire alarm went off so everyone traipses out on the way back up in the elevator there was an irish guy and his wife there and so we said hello and i can't remember because i'm quite sure i wouldn't have said why are you here <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but basically, he said, I'm here. I'm having a kidney transplant on Monday. Now, I don't normally blurt out my stuff, but because that was just quite and I felt like maybe we're being put in the lift for a reason. I said, I've had one. And he went, you don't you have? I said, yeah, if you want to ask anything or I can make you feel more comfortable in any way, please do. And he was like, please, can you? And I went over to their apartment that night. And we sat chatting. I could answer any questions he had. But the gift for me in there, which I didn't foresee, was that he was telling me he was going in for a transplant on the Monday and coming out on the Friday. He should be home on the Friday. And I was like, what? When I had been, I was in for two, four weeks and really went home. I, they wouldn't have let me go home if it was too early, but I was crawling the walls to get out. I was like, I want my normal life back. I want to be well. <laughs> I, I just want to go home. And um, so the fact that he was coming out in four days really was like, what? Mm. And he told me that for the, um, I think his son was giving him a kidney, that that was going to be um, al almost solely keyhole surgery, which I think you, John, yeah. said that you had. And I was like, what? This is this whole new thing for me because it was very different when I had it done. And it was so nice to hear. The advances. The advances, yes. And how much quicker it was for people and, and, more simple, if that's the right word to use. Yeah, no, it, it um, definitely is. I mean, yeah. like I, I can remember being told, we've got to get you out of that bed. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> so like six hours later, <laughs> I was like, what? And yeah. Tina took the pictures of me with the little rolling frame. And I, I kind of, you can kind of see it on my face. They're like, 
I'm, I'm walking around right. <laughs> six yes. hours later. And, and that seems to have been the key. I mean, uh-huh. as, as you say, like, I'm happy to answer anyone's questions. I'll throw this out to the listeners. If you want to ask me anything about this process, like my, mine is an open door policy as well. Uh, like you do get a lot of messages and a lot of weird messages along the way doing this. But this one is one that I take exceptionally seriously. And if you want to email irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com, expect a reply back within the hour. That's how serious I am about this. People need to know and I'm happy to share what I went through. I mean, isn't it crazy, though, that like, did you say 1997? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember I was in the ICU for maybe two or three days, but more because more because they didn't want to put my mum and I in the same room at the, the, that time. And I possibly because, God forbid, something had gone wrong with one of us. Mm. It would have been horrendous. But after like, and I, I remember vaguely, vaguely waking up and I had the morphine and there was this, I don't know if you had this, Charles, but there was this dial. <laughs> um, there was this tube of morphine going into me and there was this dial. And um, where t- technically, I, I mean, I figured out how to use it myself. And in, in the mid, midst of my kind of morphine stupor and waking up, I was like, oh, and I kept moving the dial just to give myself. A little bit more. And I used to have to come up and go, no, Lucy, no. <laughs> You were the Augustus Gloop of morphine. <laughs> and, uh, but I kept getting out of bed to walk to my mom's room. And so in the end, they put us both in the same room. Beautiful. And, um, uh, and that was really nice. And my uncle had bought us a mini LED, like Christmas, because it was Christmas, Christmas oh. tree with all these little lights that go on, you know, those, um, yeah, what yeah. are they called? Where they're just little LED lights yes, that yeah, go yeah. with different colours. And they I, keep changing colours. And mum and I still have that little tree. Oh, well, like I completely, I, I didn't put those, join those two dots. This takes place on the 15th. So you obviously spend Christmas Day there. Yeah. Like it's impossible then for your family to forget this. It must be yeah. every Christmas. This just, it must, it must just be there at the forefront of your minds. Yeah. And, uh, less so now for both of us. I mean, it's, you know, with my, whole thing of you know for me when I got diagnosed with renal failure and I'd been started to get sick when I was about 18 and I didn't really know what was going on because as you were aware with certainly these first bits of of kidney failure you, you don't necessarily know what was going on I just felt very very lethargic very tired I was starting to put weight on and and I didn't know why this was. And I thought I, I was just being lazy and I was trying so hard to diet and, but I couldn't sort of function, but it took two years to be diagnosed. Um, oh and it was actually the, it, I, I used to have uh, UTIs or cystitis like every two or three weeks for years. And I would go to doctors and just get given antibiotics and then told that my blood pressure was high, but I wasn't put on any blood pressure medication and I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know why I would get all of this. And it was my then boyfriend's dad, who was a doctor, who said, this doesn't seem right. Would you just pacify me and come in for a blood test? And he came home that evening. Oh, he's such a nice man. And he had tears in his eyes and he said, lovey, you have renal failure. Oh and God. I didn't know really what that was. And But Jarth, 
I asked him some questions and it didn't really sink in. And all I remember thinking is, how do I now tell my family? Because that's devastating. And I was so nervous because I was like, I knew that when I spoke these words, that their lives would change today. Hmm. That's a horrible position to be in. Yeah. Um, but we're very lucky with our family and, and, you know, everyone kind of like sticks together and, and works together to, to solve things. So that was always a good thing. Weirdly, the only thing, Jonathan, at the time, because I think I just couldn't take it in, the only thing at the time that made me jolt was when the doctor then, then I went to see a renal specialist in Birmingham and, and now I'm fully on that path. That was when I was 20. And um, and the only thing that really stuck out was the, was the doctor saying to me, so after your transplant, you've got to be on medications for the rest of your life, twice a day. And I remember thinking, oh, hell no. 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 It's one thing having kidney failure. It's another thing needing a transplant, but I am not taking pills. I don't know why. I don't know why that was the thing. That, that was the straw. That was the straw. I don't know why that was. Um, and I think it just because it, it was the one thing I could fully grasp and mm. it felt an intrusion. And I know that sounds really stupid now, but, you know, when you're only 20 and I just started working and um, doing some fun jobs and enjoying my life. And but anyway, you know, there you go. People have it a lot worse. It doesn't matter. It's just that was just my bit of experience. Yeah, you know? I, I know, but <laughs> it is so funny that every story is so different and that having to break that to your family in, oh. in that way must have been, I mean, I guess as a younger person, we build these things up and we go, this is going to, this is going to be devastating and is this even manageable? But I guess the older version of you is, is like a, aware of how you would break that and how you would say it and how you'd take the lead. I mean, your yes. your strength, uh, Lucy, like even in the way you're uh, explaining to, to us now, m must must have guided them an awful lot in this, that they they just must be so proud of how you handled it. Oh, bless you. Uh, my, I mean, yeah, my I, I'm very lucky, though, with my family They they all of us, like throughout this pandemic, my brother lives a few blocks from me here in Los Angeles, but all my other family in a sort of same area back at home in England. And um, thank God for Zoom because we do regular group Zooms, but I haven't seen them for over a year. And like in person, obviously, because of the pandemic. And it's horrible. It's really horrible. And it's hard. And my parents aren't elderly, but they're in their 70s. And I hate that I'm going this long without seeing them. I hate it. Yeah. Um, but, but thank God for Zoom. And, um, you know, we talk a lot and, you know, you just got to get on with it, haven't you? It but everyone else. It, it, like it is the it, it's been the great leveler, like in the sense of like the things that I a year ago was really obsessed with and thought were really important, including Wonder Woman 1984. I was so excited <laughs> to go and see that in the cinema. 
yeah. and then you know everything everything changes and suddenly yeah. that's a thing that my son and I and Tina watched on Disney Plus and we're just like well this wasn't so bad either you know if this right. if this is what life is this yeah. this will have to do we'll kill the lights and do that yeah. but equally yeah. I, I, I don't know how, how gutting that must have been as well even in the context of that not to get the big the big night where you all get to toast and and uh, and say job well done on the whole thing i don't i mean we're not really that kind of family anyway like you know like i said when when i was first diagnosed with with uh, kidney failure that my thing was okay so what is it that i need to do to deal with it and then how do I just get on with everything else as best that I can? I had some blips for sure. It was it was the more into the kidney disease that I, I went, obviously the tireder you become and you're less able to mix with and do the things that you want. But I worked throughout the whole thing. And I remember um, I, I used to do a radio show then called The Archers. You probably heard oh, of I The Archers. I do Ar- know The Archers. Yeah. <laughs> I loved doing The Archers. It was so much fun. And I remember coming out of hospital on a drip and going to BBC because I was only at Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which is you could walk it to what was then BBC Pebble Mail where we did the archers. And I remember being let out of hospital on my drip and coming in to record no. some episodes. I did. I was so happy. I was so happy <laughs> to be able to be let out. And like and to be fair, throughout my whole life, and this is one of the reasons I felt so I haven't talked about the kidney stuff because I cannot bear when I read used to read these articles about myself that often was nothing it might have been that a new season of the office was coming out you know it it, and then you do press for that as as is part of the job you know and and I would do that but still certain papers made it about the kidney or weight my weight I was either too thin or too fat for and, and and back then the impact in your 20s is huge on you. I couldn't give a monkey's now, Giles. People could say what they want, but that's being 48, do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. having other life experiences. But back then, when people are continually saying, you look unwell, and I was like, I'm never going to be hired, guys. And, and you, you, it's so irresponsible. You've no idea what you're talking about. You've no idea. Ama- amazing that it was so yeah. accepted. And so yes. understood that this is yeah. normal press practice. Yeah, yeah. It's quite uh, an eye-opener at the time. And people don't realise that. People don't realise that, of course, there are stories written that are true. There are stories written that are partly true. And then there are stories written with literally not one grain of, of, of salt. Is that even the, yeah. <laughs> is that the right phrase? Yeah. It's not a grain of salt. Not a grain of truth. Zero salt, um, but yeah, it's it's quite uh, uh, fascinating, and so I just kept my head down, really, and um, to some degree. You, let me ask yeah. you, see, like when you have that blip, as you keep referring to it, and there is this scare. I think the only reference I got to it was two thousand and six. Was it that this this took place? How do you navigate through that, and exactly how grateful are you when you come out the other side? 
Which blip do you mean in 2006? So, again, this could be one of these fictionalized pieces. Right. But yeah. I, I read that you were, that you came close to failure again in the mid 2000s. Oh. Yes. No, that was fictionalized. Really? <laughs> Yeah, I did have something else. I will say that. So I did go into hospital um, for a few days. So that was a shame. And that was 2005, I think. And, um, uh, and I did have that, but it was nothing to do with my kidney. And unfortunately, I, I think well, I was told that a nurse at the hospital had called the press. Wow. So, um, but no, it wasn't anything to do with that. And um but isn't it yeah. isn't it funny, Lucy? That, uh, and I'm not saying that everything's great now because it's not, and it's not a, it's not great for actresses now specifically. It, there's changes better. are taking place, yeah. yeah. But yeah. isn't it crazy that your kidney would have and what you done and been through yeah. wasn't viewed as? Isn't Lucy Davis amazing for what she's come through? That it was used as a stick to beat you with. Or as something, some kind of reason as to why you weren't, as you said, that you weren't to be hired. Isn't that funny? What is funny, though, Giles, what I noticed then when you said, instead of people thinking, isn't Lucy Davis amazing? My whole stomach went, oh, oh, no, oh, no, I don't think that's right, Giles. Isn't that funny? Is that's that a crazy. British thing? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, not amazing. Like, and also, I didn't really have a choice. You know, I, you know, my mom was the one with the choice. So I would say she was amazing. But yes, what happens then is, is it is different now. And this, there's, there's, you know, life is changing and, and for the better mostly the pendulum often has to swing the whole other way before we find a middle comfortable ground and at the moment we're in a cancel culture which i'm not in full agreement with depending on what it is i don't know that people should should make a mistake and their entire lives be cancelled depending on what the mistake is yeah obviously yes but on the other hand with that whole pendulum thing you know, nowadays, I can't imagine people writing about me that, that you know, I'm irresponsible and that's why my kidney's failing. And I mean, that's, I've had so many things like that written about me. And, and sometimes I'm not a perfect human. Yeah, I've, I've lived a life that at times I go, oh, yeah, you know, at times I would smoke, smoke cigarettes. And I, I wish I hadn't done that. I was in a very bad place and a traumatic place at the time. And, and um, I've been bulimic and anorexic. And I mean, and I didn't used to talk about that either, Joe, because Thankfully, now we're starting to understand what what mental health issues are, and I'm very grateful to be further this side of them. Do you know what I mean than than the other side? But I understand a lot about mental health and uh, mental health issues, and the fact that what seen you know in your head seems insane behaviour. Yet it's sometimes that behaviour that can get you through the day, and. For anyone, and I used to have people say, well, that's first world problems. Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe you're right. But what I do know is that if you don't understand it, that's great because it means you don't have it and it means you don't live it. And now it's becoming less of a taboo subject that all of it, I'm, I'm happier much more now to say, yep, had all of those. You know, you want to know anything? 
you know, it's only my experience that I can share and I'm not a doctor, but if you want my experience, here it is, you know, do with it whatever you will. And I think that helps to some degree because it takes, it takes your power back a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. Takes right. the yes. power back. That, yeah. That's it. Uh, yes. Jigsaw.ie are the the charity of which I'm a patron, and a lot of what you're saying there really resonates from what I read from their site. You know, they are a right. youth mental health charity, and what they're about really is equipping young people with the mental health skills and resilience they'll need to survive in life. Uh, and navigate things and yeah. part of that is recognizing like you say that understanding that this isn't a thing that's external to you this is an illness that's yeah. within you and is curable and that can yeah. that that it's understandable and as you, we said before we came on air it's mentionable and what's mentionable is manageable uh, right. and the you know the stuff is there i always give them a big shout out on the show because you just never know like you say who who's listening and is going aha and right. it, like Jig, jigsaw just helps so many young people like literally saving lives that way right. uh, <laughs> every day uh, and, and lucy like like i said at the start I, I'm massively grateful that you've taken the time to do this. I know how ridiculously busy you are. But when I heard your your stomach tightened at the at the mention of a compliment, I thought may, maybe maybe you do have some Irish blood in there. <laughs> My dad used to make a joke on stage. He was doing a stand up routine years ago somewhere in Ireland. I can't remember. He said. I had some great news. He said, I did my family tree thing. He said, I'm, I'm one sixteenth Irish. And the, and the whole audience roared because, of course, probably to them, they're like, we don't care. But he was like, isn't that great that I'm I'm the sixteenth Irish? He was so pleased. <laughs> so that's actually legit, really, because when I saw your Irish dancing the other evening on Twitter, I was like, no, there mightn't be any Irish. <laughs> yeah, I, I hide it well, Charles, you see. I I don't like to blow my own trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about this. Thank you so much and best of luck with everything that you have going on there. Uh, happy Organ Donation Awareness Week. And yeah. uh, thanks again. Now, thanks to you, my love. Yeah, it's it's been nice to chat with someone who's also been through it as well on the other side. But it's all one, really, isn't it? Absolutely. And there's loads of people out there who are ready, willing and able to talk to you if you're if you're in the situation. I, I hope yeah. that this can be the start of many other conversations. Yeah. And I don't I haven't opened up my email to people like you've generously done. But if anyone on Twitter, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Real Lucy Davis, if anybody does ask me a question about it, I will answer if I see it, I will answer. And um, good way of qualifying that as well. He, he, yes. If you see it, and I, I do think that, yeah, I was probably jumped the gun a bit. I'll do my best to reply. Yeah. yeah, because sometimes you just don't see things. Exactly. And sometimes you have more notifications than others and you can't get through them all. And but if I see them and especially if you guys have questions about donating or needing a, a transplant or anything like that, I'm, I'm open with 
all all the all the stuff, Charlie. <laughs> all the stuff is there, uh, and yeah, like like I say, we won't. I, I won't have all the answers, and neither will Lucy. No. But we might know someone who does, or we might be able to help you through our, just some our experience. Yeah, just yeah. some support. support. And, uh, I've 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 made some friends through doing that. Just through we will DM each other now and and different people, you know, who are waiting for transplants or whatever. We or with the eating disorder stuff as well. I I do try to respond so people don't feel like mm. you're on your own with it. So you know, that's a promise that I will try to do that. Well, Lucy Davis, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Irishman Abroad. I hope uh, our paths cross in person someday soon. Me too. Yeah, I love Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) Now my dad's one sixteenth. I'm just going to be there. That's it. We'll get you a passport. I mean, (laughs) passports in the post. Thanks, Lucy. Massive massive thanks to Lucy for all the support she's given me through my journey. And now it's over to you to be that lifesaver, to have that conversation with your family or your partner and let them know your wishes or just have the chat, have a conversation about it over the next week. But before we do that, we need to hear from one more extraordinary person. Again, someone who has been an incredible help to me on my journey with this stuff. A hell of a fella, fundraiser, athlete and butcher. James Nolan. James Nolan, it's fantastic to have you back on the show again. It does seem like an eternity ago since we had that chat before I headed off to uh, the Mayo Clinic with Adrian to do the deed. And I'll never forget your words at that time. And if listeners have listened to that episode, they'll know exactly how powerful the way you speak about this thing is. And I thought, what what better man to have on to talk about where Ireland's at right now in terms of organ donation and COVID-19, how it's impacted upon it and what happens from here. But before we get to that, James, maybe just give people a refresher on your own story and how different your life was for the first 19 years of it. Charlotte, thank you very much for having me on. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here because this is a topic that is so close to my heart and it obviously has formed a huge part of my life. It's very simply, I was born in 1967, which ironically was the same year of the first heart transplant, successful heart transplant. And from a very early age, I was sick. I spent most of my early years in and out of hospital. I was very, very lucky that my mother, Anne, was a nurse. And the doctors kept telling her that I had some mild form of meningitis because of the fits I was having. But she didn't feel it tallied up because of her nursing background. And she persisted. And I ended up being diagnosed with reflux at a very, very early age. So one and a half, I had a pretty big operation. Again, at seven years of age, I spent six months in hospital with a pretty major surgery that was certainly touch and go. And that was followed up again when I was 13 years of age. So really my early childhood, most of us spent in and out of hospitals, visiting doctors, going to clinics, having tests done. And after the operation at the age of 13, Myself and my parents were told, look, inevitably it's going to lead to end-stage renal failure and you will end up going on to dialysis. When exactly that was going to happen, they couldn't tell me. So in 1986, I ended up 
on dialysis in the old Meath Hospital. And um, it, was a, it was a tough journey because I'd been getting sicker and sicker but didn't want to admit it to myself and to my family. So I was really struggling on. It was like carrying an extra handicap around with you all the time because you had no energy, you couldn't eat. And when you did eat, you were just vomiting up. So inevitably, I ended up getting very, very sick. Went on to dialysis in 1986. Started with the hemodialysis. That's the hospital-based dialysis. Switched to CAPD then in early 1987. But I had problems with the CAPD. And um, May, got very, very bad pertinitis, May 1987. And my family then were approached to see would one of them consider going forward for donating a kidney. Well, let me now, stop you in- there really quick, James. Let me just jump in because, you know, you've obviously described a mouthful there that I'd imagine that the strain that this is on you and your family at that point is indescribable. They're all so worried for you because they're really looking down the barrel here. They really are thinking we may not have James for that long. This this may this may not have a happy ending. Yeah, I I think for me, Jarlath, I was born with it, so it was a lot easier for me because it's something I grew up with. But certainly for my parents and my family looking in from the outside as such, it must have been desperately difficult, especially for my parents. And then when the doctor Joe approached the family and asked, would we consider a living organ donation? Obviously, at that stage, things were getting pretty critical. So my family were tested. And my sister, Catherine, who was the eldest in the family, she made the greatest decision that any human being can make to give the gift of life to me. And, Charlotte, you've done it for your brother, Adrian. And I'm saying this hand on heart. To me, it is the greatest act of humanity a human being can do for another human being. And in a time where we live, where everything is all doom and gloom, there isn't enough done to highlight these wonderful acts of humanity that you, Charlotte Regan, done for Adrian, your brother, and my sister Catherine did for me because at the end of the day, she gave me life, you gave Adrian life. It's as simple as that. And for that, I'll always be eternally grateful. Well, I'll never tire of hearing it. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I do, I do love hearing it. And I think it's important for people to hear it because it, like, it does make your heart swell. And I'm sure it, it makes Catherine's heart swell to hear those words. Because for, for as described in Vivian's conversation, it feels like a no brainer when you're that person and it just feels right. And you're just like, well, I'll do it. Like, no question. You don't do it with the big hero complex going on in your mind. But what's interesting about Catherine is you're one of the first people to receive the live kidney donation in Ireland. Is that correct? So th- th- there's an added jeopardy there. Yeah, we were the first living transplant done in the Blackrock Clinic in uh, the 25th of July, 1987. So it was a huge thing. And for Catherine, it must have been a massive decision at a very early stage in her life. You know, she was only uh, 22 at that stage. She had a modelling career with the Geraldine Brand Agency. You know, it was a huge decision for her. But ultimately, she made the greatest decision that any human being 
can make, she decided to give me the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. But Charlotte, in a previous show, you interviewed a man called Donald McRae, who wrote an extraordinary book called Every Second Counts. And for me, I've always been fascinated about the whole story of transplantation. I often think of the doctors in the 40s and the 50s, and they're deciding that they're going to take one kidney out of one person and put it into another. And, and I think of the religious, the moral, the social, the economic obstructions that they must have faced. And yes, they persisted. And it's thanks to that I am alive and here today. But if you take Donald McRae, in that book, chapter 10, is the most heartbreaking story, the way he describes what Edward Darvel went through when his wife, Myrtle, and his daughter, Denise, were in a tragic accident. And how the doctors, Bossman and Ventner, had the conversation with him at the most tragic, tragic time to see would he consider donating organs. And Edward Darvel's reply was, if you can't save my daughter, you must try and save another life. I mean, at the hardest point in his life, this man made the greatest decision to help others. And what he did reflects what all the families that face these tragic decisions, sorry, tragic accidents in their lives and have to make these really tough decisions. They're absolute heroes in my eyes. Uh, no different to my sister, Catherine. No different to you, Janet Regan, for donating a kidney to your brother. It is the greatest gift of humanity. Well, I'll just say one last thing. Yeah. The flip side of that, if you listen to one of your previous episodes where Donald McRae read an excerpt, I think it was your second kidney program hmm. that you did. And when the transplant is connected, he starts describing it as working to the lovely rhythm of life. That they are powerful words, starts working with the lovely rhythm of life. I think that's uh, oh, sums it all listen, up. Listen, it bowled me over. And that conversation is, of course, available for people if they want to go back and listen to. We might even chop in a little bit of what James is referencing there. Just to give some context, this is in the early hours of a Sunday morning in December in Cape Town in 1967. And in the surgical theatre, Chris Barnard is about to step in and make into medical immortality. And this is what he says. Go ahead, Barnard said quietly. Shock it. Zinsky sent a 20 joule charge into the heart. For a moment, Barnard said later, the heart lay inert without any sign of life. We waited, it seemed like hours, until it slowly began to relax. Then it came like a bolt of light. There was a sudden twitching of the atria followed quickly by the ventricles. Little by little, it began to move with the lovely pulse of life. But as soon as they switched off the machine, the transplanted heart failed. The blood pressure mark dipped to 70. Barnard ordered them to go back to the pump. They waited for five nervous minutes before they attempted to start again. The same pattern occurred. Barnard shuddered bleakly. He knew how many dogs he had lost when he could not wean them off the machine. At 6.13 a.m., they made another anxious attempt. 
cut the pump, Barnard said. There was another hesitation in the heart, as if it was deciding whether or not to live in its huge new body. And then it began to beat more steadily. The pressure soared back up to 90. Jesus, did gaan weg, Barnard said in Afrikaans. In English, this meant, Jesus, it's going to work. To hear it from the author's lips as well was was doubly like sometimes with this show, James, I'm I feel so lucky just to be able to be in the conversation, you know, on the other side of it, one to one. And I know that the listeners enjoy it, but to be there listening to it face to face is something else. Some of the stuff that you're saying there uh, about just about life and the you know, the the value that we place on it in so many ways, the period that we find ourselves in has all this death in it, all this misery, so much loss. In so many ways, it's placed a massive strain on these services and these operations that couldn't take place, the cocooning of people that previously had no need to cocoon. It is nearly, would you agree, the perfect moment to talk about this, because if ever there was a time when people are feeling like life is precious, it's now. Yesterday, Jarlath, I spoke to Dilly Little in Beaumont Hospital, our National Transplant Centre, and I was absolutely staggered to hear that during the pandemic in the last 12 months, the team in Beaumont Hospital have managed to do 123 kidney transplants. I thought that was absolutely amazing considering the challenges that that they must have faced with COVID-19. And that goes from the transplant surgeons, the nurses, the ward sisters, the ladies serving the food, the, the cleaners, the porters, that whole team in the transplant unit in that hospital must have gone beyond the call of duty to ensure that we could continue transplants. And I I was staggered to hear that. It must have been very hard for all the patients going on to dialysis because they're a highly vulnerable group. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, they've got to leave their homes three times a week to go for their dialysis. Right into the belly of the beast, into the most dangerous place possible. Yeah, exactly. But the bottom line is they have no choice but to do it. And I'd say huge credit to those frontline workers that are looking after those dialysis units. I spoke to Geraldine Slowey in, dia- in dialysis unit down in Sligo yesterday and she was just explaining the difficulties but they've done it and the patients have looked after themselves and that's why we're slowly, slowly, hopefully coming out of all of this. But you're, you're right, March 27th, April the 3rd is Organ Donor Awareness Week in Ireland and normally it would coincide with the Punchtown National Festival where we would have our annual charge race We obviously didn't have it in 2020. We obviously don't have it in 2021. But it's a fantastic event to be able to promote organ donor awareness. We don't have it this year. So I'm thrilled to be able to talk about it this morning. And at the end of the day, all we're doing is asking people to have the conversation. Have the conversation, say yes to organ donation. Because if you have that conversation at home, If, God forbid, there is an accident, it is an awful lot easier for your family to make a decision 
knowing your wishes. Well, you've you've also skimmed over something extraordinary if we're to turn it around to you, James. And the money that that race that you mentioned has raised is truly phenomenal. Is the figure close to 1.5 or 2 million as, at this point? We're just over 1.6 million, Jonathan. There's two things that the charity does. It's called the Punchtown Kidney Research Fund. We run a horse race at the National Hunt Festival at Punchtown in Ireland. It's the equivalent to Cheltenham in the UK. And the, ra- the race has raised huge amount of money. So the last time I was chatting to you, we just opened a brand new children's renal ward, kidney ward in Temple Street Children's Hospital. And that was a landmark project for us to be involved in. We then had moved on to, we were involved in a self-care hemodialysis unit in Tala Hospital. Now, that was meant to open last October, but the HSE stepped in because of the COVID crisis to basically pay for everything. So we weren't involved in it, but there's hopefully another option coming up where a satellite unit for dialysis will hopefully be somewhere in Kildare. That's on the cards at the moment. So we'd love to be involved with that. We also refurbished Sligo dialysis unit with beds, dialysis chairs, beds, mattresses and a few other things. We've kept our art therapy going in Tala and Waterford. And in tandem with all that, I mentioned earlier on how interested I was in research. And thanks to research, persistent research has perfected transplantation. That's why I'm here today. So we've just finished a three-year project with Katie Benson in the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. In tandem with the Irish Research Council, mapping polycystic kidney disease in Ireland. We, Katie had a paper published on it, which was fantastic. And the whole idea is to try and come up with preventative treatments to slow down or avoid leading to kidney failure with PKD. So we've had a lot going on. That's the project side. The other side, as I said to you, is the awareness. And that's what we're here chatting about this morning. You know, magical things can happen if people have the conversation. Say yes to organ donation. It's, you know, it's something else. I just to hear you go through it there and everything that's being done. But like you've come into contact as well with more recipients than than maybe anyone. I mean, through the transplant games and all of these projects, you've you've met the people. So for the listeners that are in any way on the fence and have just, you know, taken a punt and just listened to Irishmen Abroad every week, regardless of what it is, and they're, they're just, you know, listening. Is there anything that you can say to them about these people and about the the game changer that this is for the, their lives. I mean, surely when you meet these people, there's a gratitude and appreciation for this chance that they've been given that uh, you just won't find anywhere else. You're doing a brilliant thing at the moment with Sonia Sullivan, and it's all about get up, get out, get active. And Sonia is a national hero in Ireland. There's no doubt about that. She was a fantastic athlete. For me, I have met so many heroes through the transplant games, people who have overcome incredible adversity in life thanks to people giving them the second chance through organ donation. 
we're, we have a forum, Transplant Forum, and it's a fantastic network support for all of us. So if one of us isn't feeling well, we might put a little message on. And it's like a family there to help you and support you. But going back to what you're, you're really asking me, I've seen so many people hanging on to life whilst on dialysis. And the transformation when somebody gets a life-saving transplant really transforms their life. As you said, it, it is like a magical thing happening when people are able to go back to work, maybe get married, have a family, just the normal things that everyone takes for granted that is harder for people that are on dialysis and waiting for a transplant. It, as we've said already, it is the greatest gift that any human being can give to another. It is a life changer. And I promise anyone that's listening out there, us that are in the transplant family that have received the gift of life will always be eternally grateful to the donor families. Mm. It's, um, it's great to talk to you, James, because I, I just think it's the perfect way to end the episode. Because, uh, we got three very different voices here today. And there's so many stories, as we said at the very start with Vivian, there's so many stories. This is this is really just like the tiniest tip of the iceberg of all the good feeling and greatness that comes of this modern medical miracle. We've only heard a scraping off the surface. To me, it's a no brainer and I hope it's it's convinced you in the same way. Get out there and have the chat, get the card, but just let people know, have that conversation over the Easter, whether it's on your Zoom call or maybe it's just some some night in, in with your partner. Just have to chat about it, talk it out. I mean, it's it's one of those things, isn't it, James, that in so many ways you want the right result from that chat. But at the same time, if you don't have it at all, then that's an opportunity missed. Charlotte, you summed it up. You know, over the Easter, you're sitting down at home, have the conversation. And Charlotte, I will acknowledge it's not for everyone. Exactly, yeah. But at least if your family know that you would like to or wouldn't like to, it's an awful lot easier when they know what your wishes mm. are. And again, have the conversation, say yes to organ donation. That's all we're asking people to chat about. James, thanks so much. I can't wait to head over to the butchers when I get back to Ireland eventually and uh, pick up <laughs> some beautiful steaks. <laughs> you'll be, Charlotte, yourself, Tina, Mikey, you'll be very welcome. <laughs> Look forward to it. James Nolan, absolute pleasure. Take care. Thanks, Charlotte. As James mentioned, the Irishman Abroad Kidney episodes are all there in the archive. If you want to delve back through our old episodes, I'd love you to head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. But happy Organ Donation Awareness Week to you. Thanks to Gwen O'Donoghue for connecting me with Vivian Trainer, Lucy Davis, of course, James Nolan, Brian Connolly on production. A huge congratulations to Brian and Megan on their new arrival. Welcome to the world, Eden. 
shout out to Tina and Mikey for making this episode possible. I will be back on Tuesday with Sonia O'Sullivan. As I mentioned, my stand-up special, Notions 11, is still streaming for free on the RTE player everywhere in the world. You can change a life through a very small conversation this week. So do it.